You've been listening to the weekly sermon from the Vine Church in Madison, Wisconsin, a spirit-filled family that makes disciples and plants churches among neighbors and nations through declaration and demonstration. For more information and service times, check out our website at www.thevinemadison.org. Well, this morning, we're continuing our series in the Gospel of Matthew, and for the last eight weeks, we have been slowing down just being in the Beatitudes, just soaking in these eight statements of blessing as Jesus laid out for us a vision of what his people are called to be, what, what this new community that he's building would be like, and it's a blessed community. It's the community that experiences, so to speak, the good life. The life that deep down we all desire and want. And yet what was so surprising about the Beatitudes is the way that you receive the blessed life, the good life. It seems like it's all backwards. To enter into that blessed community, you must be poor in spirit. You must be a mourner. You must be one who is hungry for righteousness, who prefers mercy and peacemaking. And ultimately, one who is pure in heart. And so as we looked at those, we we saw how ultimately we can't live out any of those perfectly on our own. That Jesus has to live those out for us and then empowers us, his people, as we trust in him, to live those same things out. But maybe one of the most surprising ones was the very last one. that, That the blessed life is one in which you are reviled and mocked and persecuted. That seems backwards. That seems strange. Why would people want to mock and revile people that are marked as peacemakers and as full of mercy? Why? Well, simply because of this. When Jesus says, this is the way I want my community to operate, he's implicitly saying, the way the world currently works is wrong and broken. And not everyone likes to hear that. And so as he not just says it could happen, but promises we will experience as his people some pushback, now Jesus turns to say, what does it look like to respond to that? How do we respond faithfully as we live out who we are in the midst of the world? And so Jesus is going to give us two pictures this morning to remind us of who we are, but also to help us avoid two mistakes as we respond to our mission to be in the world. And what's at stake here is this. When Jesus wanted to create a community that would experience blessing, the goal was never for that to be the end. Jesus always invites his people to experience his blessing so as to bring that blessing to others. And so we have to lean in and say, Jesus, would you help us know how to lean in and bring that blessing to others well? And so let me pray and we'll dig into God's word to see how Jesus paints these two pictures us. Father, thank you so much that you are a good God, who you know us and all our weaknesses and frailties, and so you sent your son while we were weak, while we were sinners, to die and rescue us. And you didn't leave us to wander alone, but you've given us your word as a lamp to our feet to guide us, to help us know how to live and walk. So would you help us to lean in this morning, to really see and hear what you want from us? And would you help me to speak only your words for our good, for your glory? Amen. 
But let me read from Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 to 16. Jesus says this, You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So this first picture that Jesus gives us is he says, you are the salt of the earth. And he says, you're salt which means right away that we're different from other things. Salt is not the same as what it salts. And not only that, but notice right away, Jesus does not give us a command. He doesn't say, be salty. He says, this is who you are. It's just an identity statement. You are the salt of the earth. And it's a plural you. All of you. You are salt of the earth. But what does it mean to be called Salt of the earth. Like what, what is that image representing? Well, salt in the time period of Jesus was a very common substance. And yet, despite it being really common, it was still very valuable. In fact, sometimes the Roman Empire would pay its soldiers in salt because it was such a useful thing. Uh, it was useful for flavoring foods, obviously, just like we do today. But its biggest usage in a world without refrigeration was preservation. It would be mixing with food to preserve it from going bad. And actually, we still somewhat do that today. You can think of dried meats, right? You rub the salt in them, and the salt preserves the meat from going bad. Now, imagine with me some salt that actually can think. And it decides it doesn't want to be salt anymore. It wants to be meat. And it got its wish. And it becomes meat. At that very moment, it loses all of its ability to preserve other meats because it lost its essential quality, its saltiness. So what Jesus says in verse 13, if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. When salt stops being salt, it's useless. Now, actual salt, pure salt, can't lose its saltiness. It's a really strong compound. But in the ancient times, salts were usually impure and mixed up. And so it would be possible for the salt to get washed out of the substance, and what's left behind might look like salt, but literally have no salt in it. And it would be now useless. They'd throw it out. It's good for nothing. It's lost its essential characteristic. And in losing its saltiness, it's lost its very purpose to be a preserver. And Jesus is saying, Christians... Your identity is one of being different. And if you lose your very differentness from the world, you lose your purpose of being salt preservers in a world that's not always going well. So you can't be an influence for good in the world if you just become like it. How can we bring comfort to a world that badly needs it if we don't first act differently by mourning our own sins? How can we seek to be people that bring justice in a world that badly needs it if we don't first hunger and thirst 
for justice in our own lives and our communities first? How can we bring peace and mercy into a world that's full of violence and vengeance and self if we don't become peacemakers and not just peacekeepers? If we don't become people of mercy instead of people of vindication? So you look around the world. It doesn't take long to realize that there's something broken, that there's something rotting. I just have to look at the fact that despite all of our advances, we cannot seem to end war. It goes on and on and on in different parts of the globe over and over and over again. We haven't fixed anything. Or the fact that lately it seems like our politics are becoming more and more toxic, more and more extreme. Or the fact that so often human life from the womb all the way to the tomb is valued cheaply. Or the fact that despite so many laws changing, racism is still present in our country. There's a rottenness in our world. And in this, Jesus says, I have something that acts as salt. And it's my people, my church community. They are going to be salt. They are going to be different and so actually be preservers of something Good And actually, if you look at church history, whenever the church actually leans into being what God calls it to be, it has that exact impact. In the early church or in the Roman Empire, it was the Christians that stayed in the towns when everyone fled to care for the victims of plague. It was the early church Christians that cared for un- uh, abandoned babies that no one wanted. It was Christians after the great revivals in England in the 1700s that banded together and said, Enough is enough. We're ending the slave trade. It's wrong. It was after revivals in the U.S. in the 1700s that Christians helped do things like create public education and hospitals and also work to end slavery. It was Christian missionaries in the early 20th century who in the the Congo, Belgium Congo, looked at what was going on with the rubber trade and the mistreatment of Africans and said, this is wrong. We're going to expose it and end it. And it's Christians today that are leading the charge against sex trafficking around our globe. Whenever Christians have dared to be different, they've brought blessing to the world around. But they had to be different because it was normal in the Roman Empire to abandon people with the plague. That wasn't seen as bad. That was just normal. It was normal in the 17 and early 1800s to have slaves. That was normal. It was normal to treat Africans as less than human in the early 20th century. And it's sometimes still normal all around our world to treat women and children as just objects. The church has always been blessing when they've been different, when they've stood out. And here's the irony. So often, the world says they don't like Christians for being different, but actually, they often hate us more when we're hypocrites for not being different. Rightly so, they look at the church and say, where were you in the 1960s when there was still segregation? Why weren't you different from the culture at the time? And they're right. We were wrong. We failed to be different. We failed to be salt and blessing. And so even if the world wants us today to say, get in line, we're on the ark of progress, just be like us, the church always actually brings blessing when we say no. We're going to be who God calls us to be. Because in the end, that will actually bless you 
more. See, the church has this amazing ability to say no to power gone bad because the church knows there's one ultimate authority and he is good and one day he will judge all things and so they stand by that authority and can say no to every other corrupt authority. No other organization or group of people has that moral strength to do that like the church has throughout history. See, the church needs to be different. The church needs to be weird. But that's... That can sound abstract as we just talk about history, but what about us? Because the church is not just out there. The church is us. It's me. It's you. And maybe you're like me, and when you read this passage, you can be tempted like I was and convicted, where it's like, actually, Jesus, can I just fit in? Like, I don't know if I really want to be different. Like, I was the outsider in high school, and I remember how painful that was, and I don't want that again. I'd rather just fit in. I'm scared of being different. And Jesus says, yeah, but that's who you are, and it brings blessing. In fact, I saw this played out actually in a recent Pixar short. Um, there's a, a purple ball of yarn that gets hired to work at this company. And she comes in, and everyone in the company is a guy wearing a black and white suit. And right away, she does not fit in. She's different. She acts differently. She has different likes. She tells different jokes. And she is clearly excluded and not welcomed, is not welcome to the lunch crowd. And so she knits herself into a square shape and puts on a black and white suit and starts to act like everyone else around her to fit in. And it works. They like her. She's liked, and then she finally gets invited to go to lunch with all the guys in suits. And as they walk to the elevator, head out, the elevator doors open, and a pink ball of yarn comes in. She just got hired. And she sees the purple ball of yarn covered up by the suit and is so excited to see someone else like her. But the purple ball of yarn ignores her and gets in the elevator. But just before the doors close, she sees the look of sadness on the pink ball of yarn's face and squeezes through the door to go talk to her. And then it flash forwards months later, and the whole office is full of different colored balls of yarn and guys in suit, and there's this, like, this atmosphere is electric, it's positive, it's beautiful, it's good. There, there's a blessed workspace. But it never would have happened if that purple ball of yarn would not have dared to be different. The blessing came from the difference. And that's what Jesus says of us, the church. It's your differentness from the world that makes you a blessing for it. If you lose that, you lose your ability to bring good change. So what might it look like? Well, Jesus actually told us what it looks like to be salt. It's the Beatitudes. He says to be one who's known for mourning sin. He's said to be one who hungers for righteousness, who desires mercy and peacemaking. This is what it looks like. It looks like being different. And I was thinking about this recently. I was at a conference, and I heard Tim Keller speaking about how, how to engage the world around us. And he was talking about how our culture today is, in some ways, very similar to the early Roman Empire. And he talked about how, how historians have really shown five key differences that made the church stand out from everyone around them in the early Roman Empire. And it was this. One, they cared for the poor. Two, they were the only organization that welcomed all ethnicities. Three, 
they cared for unborn infants and abandoned infants. Four, they had a sexual ethic that said sex is only good in the consensual relationship of marriage of one man and one woman. And five, they loved and forgave their enemies. Which then Tim Keller said, the first two, caring for the poor and ethnicities, caring for ethnicities, sounds like the Democratic Party these days. The third and fourth, caring for the unborn and having a sexual ethic that's limited for good, sounds a lot like the Republicans. And loving your enemies sounds like neither party. Because that's the point. We're not meant to fit into any boxes. Because we're not building the same type of kingdom. We're a community of salt that's meant to stand out. And some of you are doing that. I think of one person I know in this church that when they were working at Epic, they used to routinely go to their coworkers and apologize when they're convicted of speaking negatively about customers. Who does that? You're never going to get caught for that. Why would you humble yourself and repent in front of your coworkers? It's different. I think of someone else in our congregation who works in the construction field where all the language is sexual jokes and vulgar language, and he stands out by speaking differently. I think about a professor I knew in seminary who, when he was a college student, walking home one day in the rough part of town, saw a woman being attacked in an alley. And as he said, well, of course I rushed and beat the dude up and helped her out. So that's what every guy should do. But not every guy does, sadly. It's different. I think about um, someone I know in this church that in their school and work situation, instead of being defensive, is humbly asking for help to grow from their boss. That's different. Or maybe some of you at, in your workplaces or friends, instead of laughing at the racist joke, are calling it out. Maybe some of you are out of step with what everyone else is thinking about in terms of entertainment and TV shows because you've chosen not to watch that show because it's full of garbage. And you care more about honoring Jesus than being current with what's around. That's salty. Actually, the whole Bible tells us how to be salty. There's a million ways it could play out, to be honest. It's not hard to figure out how to be salty. What's hard is to actually go and live it, to actually stand out, to actually be different because you're swimming against the current. You're trying to be a preserver for good when it feels like the whole dam is all these holes and you're just trying to plug one hole. But remember, you're not doing this alone. You, plural, are the salt of the earth. In this together. Together we make a difference. So let me ask you are you salty? If someone was to look at your life, would you stand out? Or would you just blend in? I know many of you are really being faithful to be salty. Probably not perfectly, none of us are perfect, but really leaning in. Praise God. Maybe others of you this morning, like me, when you are hearing this passage, God's bringing to mind areas of life where you're not salty. And the good news is that Jesus loves to forgive those who ask for forgiveness. And he's the one that actually makes us salty. Remember, it's your identity that he gives you. So ask him for help. And he'll help. So you can stand out and be different and bring blessing to the community around you. But if one temptation is to just be like the world, the second temptation is to hide. To say, sure, I'll I'll be different, 
but I'll do it off in a monastery far away so I don't have to take any heat for being different. And so Jesus gives us a second picture. Verse 14, he says, you are the light of the world. And he builds on the picture. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. He says, you can't hide. It's not who you are. You're light. You're a city on the hill. I mean, I don't know about you, but I love the Capitol building. I think it's just this really beautiful building. And I love how when they built it, they built it on the hill in the center of town so you can see it from all over. I just think that is so cool. I just love it. Now, imagine if the first builders, when they built it, built it on the hill, and then right as they finished building it, said, okay, great. Now we have to camouflage it so no one can see it. You'd be like, what? Why did you build it on a hill then? You build it on a hill so it can be seen. Or imagine you go to somebody's house, and they have every lamp on in the house, but they're all covered by black cloths. You'd be like, why are you wasting your electricity? There's no point having a lamp on if you're covering it by a black cloth. That's ridiculous. And that's what Jesus is doing. He's saying, don't you see? It's ridiculous. If you're light, you don't put it under a basket, but on a stand. If you're a city on a hill, it's not meant to be hidden. It's meant to be seen. This is who you are. But sometimes, we don't want to catch the heat for being different. And so we're like, can I be the light off in the corner in the back room so I catch a little bit less heat? Because the fact is that light, even though it's a good thing, is not always loved. Jesus knew that firsthand. And John chapter 3 says, And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. See, when you're light, that reveals dark spots. And that can be scary because the darkness doesn't like to be found out. And we know that. And so sometimes we prefer to hide. When I was reflecting on this passage, God brought to mind two instances in the last month where I was with people, and I should have opened my mouth, and I kept it shut because I was scared. I chose to hide, and I had to repent of that and ask for God's forgiveness because I don't want to hide. I want my light to shine. And one of the things that I've just been really reflecting on is this. If who we are is light, then by definition... People should see light when they see us. And the light they see is Jesus. He's the true light of the world. And if people look at our lives and don't see Jesus, don't see the light, it's not because we aren't bringing Jesus into things. It's actually because we're suppressing him. Let me say that again. If people are not seeing Jesus in us, it's not because we're not bringing him in. It's actually because we're suppressing him. We are lights. We shine. And if we're not shining, it's because we're actively hiding. That was sobering for me to realize. And the thing is, a community of Jesus which seeks to hide has stopped following Jesus. We don't want to hide. Sometimes that hiding looks like staying quiet. Sometimes it looks like changing how we behave to fit in. Sometimes the hiding just looks like practically just not being around people that aren't like us. Maybe you have to work with them, but there's no way they're going to be involved in your life or you're going to be involved in their life practically. Just going to do our own thing, just be in a little Christian silo. 
And one of the ways I remember a pastor t- saying to me that you know if you're actually around people that are unlike you is do they invite you to their parties and do you invite them to your parties? That's how you really know you're in their life. Jesus all the time was eating with the people of his day that were outside. That, that's what shows that you're really in. See, we weren't saved. We weren't made to be lights so we could hide in our homes. We were made to throw open the doors and the windows and shine and let people in. I know it can be hard, but I was just so encouraged recently. Uh, a, a family in our, uh, the core group for the church plant decided to throw a St. Patrick's Day party. And so they invited a bunch of people from the core group over, but they also walked up and down their street, knocked on every neighbor's door, and invited them to come. And, uh, and every person they talked to came, which was really cool. And it was so fun on St. Patrick's Day to see like, people from the core group mixing with all these neighbors they'd never met before, and just connecting and caring for them. And when I asked this family afterwards about it, they're like, yeah, this was outside our comfort zone. Like, we're naturally more introverted. But they're excited to grow and being lights in their neighborhood. It was so encouraging to see them taking those steps of faith to say, we're not going to be like salt just hanging out in the cupboard. And we want to actually get into the mix. And just as every light doesn't exist to draw attention to itself, but to shine on something else. So we're meant to do the same thing. Did you notice that at the end of verse 16? As we let our light shine before others so they may see our good works, they give glory to our Father in heaven. That's the goal, not to draw attention, but to point the attention to the source of our light, God himself, Jesus. I love one practical example Paul gives of standing out as lights. In the book of Philippians, Paul writes this, Do all things, notice all, do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. Can you imagine if you went to work and all day you didn't complain once? I know it seems really hard to think about But if you did, you would stand out by the end of that day. Because the fact is, basic water cooler conversation is grumbling. You grumble about the boss, about the customers, about your schedule, about the weather, about politics, about the missed sports call from the weekend game. Grumbling is seemingly the way we connect. But what if we didn't? What if we didn't grumble? What if we were known as thankful instead of grumbling people? Stand out. Many people be like, why are you that way? You don't seem to fit around here. And we could actually say, well, actually, on my own, naturally, I'd be a grumbler. But Jesus is changing me. Because see, when people see our good deeds and then glorify God, the, the thing that's not made explicit here in Matthew is that the way they get from seeing good deeds and saying, oh, this is about God, not about you, is that we open our mouths and speak. And actually, Paul draws in these two things together in the book of Colossians in chapter 4. He says this. He says, walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. You could say, live salty lives. And let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt. There's that salt image again, but now with speech. So that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Paul's saying, your life should be lived so differently 
that it raises questions. And when people ask questions, you open your mouth and you speak. And you say, let me tell you about where the light really comes from. It's not in me. See, gospel living and gospel speaking always go together. You can't really share the gospel unless you open your mouth and speak the good news of Jesus. But it's pretty useless to share the gospel with your words if your life suggests you're just a jerk. The two go together. And this is because God wants us to shine so people see him. God is the God who in the beginning spoke and there was light in the darkness and he has always been about dispelling the darkness from the light of his word. And so he's left outposts of light in the midst of a dark world and that's us, the church. All over the globe, there are outposts of light shining, welcoming people from the darkness in. Because at the end of the day, our biggest problems are not social. As much as we can be causes of social good in the world, and we should be, that's not the ultimate problem. The ultimate problem is that all of those social problems flow from the fact that our hearts naturally are in the dark because we've rejected the light, which is Jesus. And until that changes, nothing else will fully really change. So the church is called to, to shine, to show the power of the gospel in our lives, and then to speak that light into the darkness. So let me ask you, not just are you being salty, but are you shining? Are you shining in the dark, or are you hiding? Are you planting your flag for Jesus? And and I don't mean in that sense you have to have a bumper sticker or a, a placard in your yard. I just mean, is it obvious that you're a Jesus person? Or do people have to do a bunch of hunting and digging around to finally figure that out? Because you're light. People are meant to see it. They shouldn't have to wonder. It should be so obvious in our lives. I know that as I've soaked in this, I've just been encouraged to say, God, man, you're so forgiving of me and my weakness. And so now it's given me a desire. I want to just boldly be a light. I'm praying that for you too, all of you. That we wouldn't leave here condemned, but encouraged to say, okay, God, help me to be who you've made me to be and shine. Because I don't know about you, but I can think of people's names and faces that I love and care about that are in the dark right now. And I want to be a light on the windowsill, the window open, shining, showing them there's something good to come into, and it's the family of Jesus. After all, that's why Jesus came. He says this in John chapter 12. I have come into the world as light, so whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Jesus came to rescue us from darkness, then having rescued us, to plant us as outposts to draw others in. But we'll only be able to be faithful in our mission of bringing this light, this blessing, if we're different and if we don't hide. And if we are who he's made us to be, then we'll not only bring blessing to others, but glory to him. Let me pray. Father, thank you so much that you are the God who loves to bring light into the dark places. So much so that you sent your son, the light of the world, into the darkness 
to be killed by the darkness and to rise up victorious from the grave with the promise of one day banishing darkness forever. And so I pray first and foremost, every person here would look to you, Jesus, and trust you to recognize their need to be brought into the light, to not live for themselves but for you, to find life in you. And I pray that every person that trusts in you would be challenged and encouraged to leave this place and say, Father, help me just to be who you've made me to be, salt and light, for the blessing of those around me and for your glory. I pray us in your name. Amen.